Hope you've had a good week and uh, get out of the light here. We're going to continue our series this morning in Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5 and uh, just to kind of bring us up to speed and give us a quick reminder of what's going on in Nehemiah. You remember Nehemiah's Old Testament lived in the 5th century B.C. and was the cupbearer and, and likely a trusted personal advisor to the king over the known world at that time, King Artaxerxes I. Nehemiah had a prestigious position and, and God had put him in that position and he used his influence to ask the king if he could return to his home city of Jerusalem. It had been conquered by the Babylonians 150 years or so prior and uh, and they were in captivity for 70 years. 30,000 of the Jews had already returned back to their homeland. They rebuilt the temple, uh, but the walls around the city were in ruin. And, and if you remember from previous weeks, uh, a wall around a capital city was very important, especially for protection from enemies. And Nehemiah had a heart for the people, a heart to see this wall rebuilt. The king granted his request to go and, and get provisions for it. And, uh, and the walls were finally rebuilt in uh, about 150 years after they had first been conquered. Um, on this next slide here, you'll see a picture of some remains, uh, obviously now the rubble of, which what was once the Great Wall of Nehemiah. And I just want to show this picture to all to say that the people, the events, the places in the Bible are rooted and grounded in the reality that, that they can be found in archaeology and uh, documents and verified, you know, compared to, say, like the largest American-grown religion, Mormonism, uh, at Mormonism, the people, the tribal groups, the three tribal groups that developed out of that, uh, the places, the, the events, uh, can't be verified at all by archaeology, whereas in, in the Bible and Christianity, you can, in archaeology, show that the people, places, events did, in fact, occur at the times they, they said they occurred in the Bible. Um, before we get into chapter 5, I, I want to take a moment just to step back from the details of what's going on on a, on a human level of building a wall and share with you what's going on from a higher level. Uh, what we see in chapters 4 through 6, and we're looking at chapter 5 this morning, is Satan attacking the work of God on three different levels. Last week, Alan spoke from chapter 4, and, and first of all, Satan attacks from the outside. In chapter 4, you see several of the surrounding people groups and nations hearing about the progress on the wall, and they conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Samballat, a leader of the Samaritans, Tobiah, a leader of the Ammonites. But the Israelites, led by Nehemiah, became aware of their plan, and they prayed to God, and then they made an effective counter plan to guard the city that effectively discouraged the enemies from attacking it. So Satan's attack from the outside was stopped. Uh, secondly, Satan likes to attack the work of God from the inside, and that's what we'll see today. We'll see this morning how Satan creates division and conflict. There's a very serious situation of social and economic injustices, and it put a temporary halt to the work on the wall and threatened to end the work entirely. Satan loves to attack from the inside. It's one of his favorite strategies, and, and he loves to create strife and disunity among God's people because he wants to slow the work, he wants to stop the work, and if he could even destroy God's work, but as we know, uh, nothing can destroy the work of God. Nothing will prevail against the church, as Jesus said. And so under godly, courageous leadership, we'll see this morning, and truly repentant 
hearts of the people, Satan's efforts to destroy the unity of God's people were thwarted and can be thwarted today. Now, thirdly, Satan loves to target the leaders of God's people. We'll see that next week in chapter 6, how Satan attempts to attack God's work by targeting Nehemiah specifically. If you're a leader of God's people, you have a target on you. <laughs> There's always some kind of situation, some kind of conflict, some kind of challenge that you're dealing with. And the people don't always see it. The leaders bear the brunt of that. But, but it's not a question of what the conflict or what the challenge is. It's what is it. And um, so there's always something like that. But uh, as we'll see, Nehemiah stood strong. You know, it's a, it's a tragic thing when a leader of a church falls into immorality or um, just gets discouraged from the burdens of ministry or, or the, if the congregation won't follow and obey the leaders, then they step out. You know, it's, it's a tragic thing when Satan gets the victory over the leaders of God's people. And he likes to attack those leaders. Uh, but, you know, if, if you can't stand up against every op obstacle that comes along, you don't have much strength. Um, give me a leader like Nehemiah, you know, and, and I'll show you a work of God that can't be stopped. Uh, so three ways Satan likes to attack God's work. And the good news is that, God, that he can be thwarted. His efforts can be thwarted at every level. All his plans can be foiled. And we're going to look at chapter 5 now. And uh, we'll just read the first five verses here. First of all, we're going to read about the outcry of the people. There's like a big protest rally that develops here. Listen to the first five verses. There was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been bought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards." So you just see this great outcry of the people against their Jewish brethren. Um, Stop the work on the wall. It just couldn't go on anymore. And, and there's basically four or five problems or complaints they had. We see in verse 2 that there were large families who didn't have enough to eat. They were poor. They had to have food. They couldn't go on working on the wall like this. Verse 3, we see that they had to mortgage their lands, vineyards, and houses to buy grain because of the famine. A famine then was a very serious thing. Verse 4, they had to borrow money just to pay the king's tax on their lands and vineyards. So this money was going 800 miles away up to Susa to the king. Uh, we're probably all where, the, where all the production jobs were. There was nothing in Jerusalem. The money wasn't coming back into the economy in Jerusalem. So they were paying the tax. They had to borrow money just to pay it. And in verse 5, we see they're in their desperation, they even sold their children as slaves. I can't imagine what drives a, a parent to that, to that point where you would actually have to sell your children just to survive. Uh, but it got to that point here. That's how serious the situation was. They became slaves just to eat and live. And in a few more verses, uh, we'll see how the wealthy weren't helping their less fortunate brethren. Uh, they were even exploiting the situation, kind of like loan sharks. They were inflicting high interest rates on their loans to their countrymen, something that was forbidden in the law of Moses. So an outcry, an uprising of God's people, the work on the wall couldn't go on any further till the situation was resolved. This chapter in Nehemiah, as I was thinking about it from the bigger picture, kind of feels to me like a, a bit like reading a novel or watching a play or movie where there's a main plot that drives the whole story. And then along comes a subplot. 
And the, everything has to stop for that subplot to develop and conclude before you can go on to the main story. That's what it kind of feels like here. We have to get this, we have to resolve these problems before we can go on to the, to the main issue of rebuilding the wall. And we may not be building a wall here, uh, but we are going to be renovating a building very shortly. Um, and we're doing some spiritual wall building. We're building the kingdom of Christ, as servants of Christ, taking the message of the gospel out and preaching his word and, and drawing others in with his love so they may understand salvation and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Um, and just to say that our, if we have internal dissension and strife, that can hinder our spiritual wall building. If Satan is unsuccessful at stopping us from becoming strong Christians and having strong testimonies from his text from outside the church, he will attack from the inside. And, you know, some churches no longer exist today because of internal strife and, dis and dissension. Some fail uh, because they fail to carry out the mission of God, taking the gospel out, but a lot of churches fail because of internal disagreements and jealousies. May it never be for Cornerstone, 100 years old now. That's, that's a testimony to God's grace and mercy um, that we have survived and thrived. Listen to Galatians 5.15. Galatians 5.15, Paul says, But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. You remember how Jesus prayed in John 17 in his high priestly prayer? He prayed this in verses 20 to 21. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. He prays specifically for the unity of the church, that it would be a testimony, that unity would be a testimony of him to the world. It was partially fulfilled in Acts 4 when you see that first church forming and they, all, they sold their possessions and shared with all who had need. And they were a great testimony to that region in that time. But that prayer is also for us today. Christ wants that unity for us here in this century and in this region. You know, one of Satan's favorite strategies to create division among God's people, I think partly he does that because he can't destroy our faith he can't snatch us out of God's hands. We can't lose our salvation. The Bible is crystal clear about that. You remember John 10, 27 to 29, it says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. You know, so Satan can't cause us to lose our salvation. We can't do that either but he can cause us to be obstacles to one another and negatively affect our testimony to the world. According to 1 Peter 5.8, 1 Peter 5.8, we are to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. But the great news is that God's people can thwart Satan's plans to create that strife and disunity, in Ephesians 6.11, we're told to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And you can read more about the spiritual armor he talks about in Ephesians 6, how our salvation is like a helmet, how our, our faith is like a shield, and our righteousness like a breastplate, and the word of God like a sword. We can put on the armor of God and fight against the plans of Satan. And there's so much scripture that 
speaks about how we should treat each other. Uh, I had five passages in mind, and I'm just going to share one of them. Maybe I can email out the others. They're all just as good. But in Ephesians 4, listen to Paul's words here about the unity and how we are to treat one another. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's the apostle's desire. That's God's desire for us as a body of believers. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's read about how Nehemiah was used to bring about peace and unity. Let's look at the next section here. Verses 6 through 13 talk about the impact of a godly leader. Nehemiah, in his personal journal, writes, And I became very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury, that's charging interest, from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them, and I said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now, indeed, will you even sell your brethren, or should they be sold to us? They were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus, may he be shaken out and emptied. All of the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. See, first of all, the leader's reaction. Nehemiah was angry. And he had a righteous kind of anger. There was a great injustice here. The Bible doesn't say we can't be angry. In Ephesians 4, verse 26 to 27, it says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. So there's, a, there's, a, there's also an unrighteous kind of anger. We're, we're familiar with that kind of anger. Uh, we have to be careful about that. Our, our love should be so deep for one another that we don't give in to that kind of anger and towards other Christians. And, and if there is broken or damaged relationships between each other or strained relationships with another believer, we should take care of that and get right with that person before the sun goes down. That's the end of the day, before you lay your head down on the pillow, um, ideally. And we could probably apply that to our marriage and family life, too. Uh, sometimes it's hard to confront a situation, you know, but it's, it's easier to let things slide by. Uh, I know what that feels like, but we should give some serious thought to what would please the Lord. Uh, take care of those situations before they grow into bitterness and, and bigger problems. Don't let the sun set on your anger. It becomes very difficult to repair those later on. But Nehemiah, in a righteous anger, rebukes the nobles and the rulers for charging interest to their countrymen. And God told Moses that they couldn't do that to each other. They could charge interest to foreigners, not to their own people. And they couldn't make each other slaves. 
but they, they could make each other hired men, but not slaves. So they're knowingly disobeying God's word. And that makes God angry when we knowingly disobey God's word. It made Nehemiah angry. You know, when God's people willingly disobey God's word, that should stir in us a righteous sort of anger. And when we see, uh, and we have the election coming up this week, when we, when we see political policies in place that overstep the natural bounds of politics and invade God's territory, you know, especially the murder of the unborn, redefining marriage to include homosexuals, that should stir in us a righteous sort of anger. You know, we don't need to apologize for standing up for God's values and his commands and his word. So Nehemiah gave serious thought to the situation, had a righteous anger, and he called a great group of people together, and he publicly called out the sin of the nobles and the rulers. They sinned publicly. They caused a lot of damage. And Nehemiah didn't want to hide that sin. He didn't want to cover it up. He wanted to take it on, and he wanted to fix it. And I just love this next section here, the, this practical solution and the people's response. Nehemiah, he had some ideas about how to fix this situation, and he, he, he rebukes them for charging the interest and allowing slavery, and in so doing, becoming a reproach before their enemies. And their, and their response was to be silent under deep conviction of their sin. You know, when you're confronted with something that convicts your heart, sometimes the best thing to do is to be silent. Nehemiah pleaded with them to stop what they were doing wrong, to restore the possessions of the people along with the interest, and they agreed to do so. Then he made them make a promise before God to take this serious vow before the priests to, to do what they would say they would do. And the wonderful thing is we know that they truly repented because they did what they said. That's what truly defines a repentant heart, the willingness to obey, and then actually obeying and doing what God wants. The only way to resist the devil, uh, David Burke says, the only way to resist the devil is to humble ourselves before God and others. Were the people of God loving their neighbors as themselves? No. But Nehemiah called for repentance and the devil fled because the people humbled themselves and repented of their sin. The devil fled because the people humbled themselves and repented of their sin. They did what they said they would do. Now what a glory to God repentance is. We should live out the power and glory of the unity of Jesus Christ. It's a powerful testimony to the world. Let's purpose to do what it takes to make a situation or a relationship right because of the glory it can bring to God. You know, the more you read about Nehemiah, the more you have to like the guy. We just have a short section left in this chapter. And it gives us a glimpse into the generosity of this godly man. He's a, he's a man of integrity in all areas of his leadership role. He was appointed to be the, he was a newly appointed governor over the Jews for 12 years, it says. Uh, but he gave up many rights and privileges a governor would normally have because of his heart for God and his heart for the people. Let's listen to verse 14 through 19 here. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brethren ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine, besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. 
And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl were prepared for me. And once every 10 days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on this people. Remember me, my God, for good according to all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah, as the newly appointed governor, could have charged taxes on the people. He could have had certain provisions, including a special food allowance. He could have bought land at low prices. He could have sought to build his own empire. Could have ruled the people strongly. But not once did he take advantage of those privileges at this time of crisis. He didn't take advantage of the special food privilege. He didn't tax the people. He didn't buy land at a discount. He didn't rule the people oppressively. He never became too good for the people under him. You know, you got to love that in a leader. Instead, he provided out of his own pocket for the needs of many. Instead, he provided for 150 people at his table regularly from his local rulers and nobles, plus all those dignitaries that would have come in occasionally, visitors. He provided probably for at least a couple hundred people every day out of his own pocket. What a godly example this man was. You know, the past governors did all those things. They overtaxed. They took food and money and ruled heavily. But Nehemiah, I love how he didn't, he didn't lose sight of the goal and mission God had given him, which was to rebuild that wall. The Apostle Paul is another great example of a godly man denying his rights in the interest of the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul's example in 1 Corinthians 9, just read a few verses from there. Verse 4 says, next slide, Do we have no right to eat and drink? Verse 12, if others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Verse 14, even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Paul is saying, as an apostle, I have a, I have a right from God to be supported from the people of God. Uh, as a missionary, you know, the Bible talks about supporting workers of God, preachers of the gospel, elders, uh, supporting missionaries. Paul had a right to that. But he says in verse 15, I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me, for it would be better for me to die that, than that anyone should make my boasting void. You know, he could, have, he could have settled down, gotten married, had a family. He could have asked uh, for money from the church, but he chose to remain single so he could focus more on the work of God. He chose to make, at times, tents and sell them to people so he had money for his needs and for those traveling with him so that he wouldn't be a burden on the church. The Apostle Paul, sacrificing his rights as, as privileges as an apostle for the people and for God. You know, we can give up our right to a normal standard of living for the kingdom of God. And uh, Chuck Swindoll says it's not wrong for Christians to have nice things unless those nice things have them. Think about that. It's not wrong for Christians to have nice things unless those nice things have them. Uh, sometimes God does gift a, a believer with riches and ability to use those for the glory of God, unless they control your life, though. That's no good. There's so many needs around us that go unmet. And I, I think sometimes we see so many needs around us, maybe we become a little desensitized to the needs out there, um, to the plight of the disadvantaged, and maybe we don't feel so concerned about them. We, we know there's real people with real needs in our communities, but maybe we're just a little numb to it. Um, we could rationalize it, saying that most Christians around me are 
sort of materialistic and don't help the needy, so I don't need to be that way. But you know what made the difference for Nehemiah? Verse 15 says that he, he wasn't like the leaders before him because of the fear of God. Because of the fear of God. You know, if we are humble before God and are living our lives to please him and obey him, our priorities might have to be rearranged a little bit. Your life, your ministry can be different. You can break whatever pattern of inactivity and indifference you see around you in the Christian community and do something significant to help meet the needs of the needy. You don't have to be like everyone else. You can go out and make a difference. We have a newer team at Cornerstone called our, our growth team. I'm, ex I'm excited about that. Um, the VBS and Friend Sundays we had this summer were organized by them and looking forward to more opportunities presented by them this fall to help meet needs in the community. But I want to encourage everyone here this morning not to wait for the church or, or a growth team to provide you opportunity. There's opportunities out there. And um, I've recently been in contact with the Johnston Partnership for a Healthy Community. They're partner with organizations and are recently trying to partner with the faith community, churches in Johnston, to meet the needs in our community. I'm on an email list and um, I also gave them a follow-up call to kind of find out a little more details about what they're doing and um, forwarded it on to Nick Reed, who will also pass it on to the growth team. Uh, currently, this partnership, and they're trying to organize, they're serving over 200 families in Johnston. Did you realize that? When you think of Johnston, I don't know, maybe you look at the west end, the northwest end, and you think, there's not too many needy families in Johnston. But if you take Johnston as a whole, th this organization is serving over 200 needy families in Johnston. 30% of these families are single-parent families or retired individuals living on a small fixed income. They have a food pantry. They have a closed closet that provides the, uh, the people a three-day supply of non-perishable food and five personal care items each month. And people can shop for bread, fresh produce through them at discounted prices every week. They, um, people can get diapers, wipes, infant formula, baby food on request. I, I just like the idea of churches partnering together with an organization like this to help meet real physical needs. Isn't that, isn't that a wonderful idea? Uh, you know, sometimes it all it takes is someone to stand up like a Nehemiah and get involved and work to make things right. You know, this partnership, they welcome volunteers. If you're interested, they welcome volunteers to help two to four hours a month or donate food. There's a Thanksgiving meal donation collection of $25 a meal. We've been involved with that in previous years. Um, they also need hats, coats, and boots for kids. Shauna on the phone told me that some of these kids wait at their bus stops without those items, uh, without the coat and hat and gloves they need. It's a big need for them. They also have a uh, mentoring partnership with 60 students from the 5th to 12th grades. And that's going to be a, a powerful thing, too, to be a mentor to some of these children at risk and needy families. So all to say, there's opportunities out there. And as a church, Cornerstone is going to try to make some of those opportunities available to you. But you don't, and we have some very creative and energetic people on the growth team. I'm excited about that. But you don't need to wait for the church. If you feel a burden for these people and you want to help meet their needs in, in ways as a ministry to the Lord, do it. Just go out and do it as a ministry to the Lord. It doesn't matter if you get recognized for it. Um, as Nehemiah prayed in verse 19, God will remember it and he will reward you according to all you have done for these people. That was Nehemiah's prayer. Maybe he didn't feel like he would be remembered or recognized. He is in the word of God though. And we remember him as a godly example for us. Just go and do. Um, 
We're going to close our time in, in the Word here. We've come to the end of chapter 5, and we're going to close in prayer. And I also want to thank the Lord for our time of communion we're about to have here. Uh, let's just come before the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this uh, time in your Word, how refreshing it is to our souls. Help us to resist the devil in all his attacks. From the outside, from the inside, help the leaders here to stand strong. Help us to keep Christ the center of our lives. Help us to, help us to have, make our fellowship strong and, and may it never be broken. May there never be division and strife and disunity that slows, stops, and even destroys the work of God here. Thank you for Nehemiah and the courage, the boldness, the man of faith, the man of prayer he was, the man of action and wisdom he was. Lord, help us to be like a Nehemiah, one who will stand up against the injustices in society and among believers, one who will stand up to honor you in everything. Lord, we thank you for, the, for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was crucified on a cross for our sins. He was a perfect sacrifice, taking the punishment of all kinds of sinners all over the world to make us right with him. It's just amazing that us, your, your creation, your creatures, that you created, you are the sovereign Lord of all the universe, the creator, maker, and sustainer of all things, and yet your creation rebelled against you, fell into sin, and so under your condemnation and, and judgment. Lord, we deserve hell. We deserve eternal punishment for our sins. And yet, out of your great love and mercy, the great love which you have loved us with, you sent your son, the Lord Jesus, to die on a cross for our sins. And Lord, this time of communion, the bread, which reminds us of the body of the Lord Jesus given for us, and the, and the juice, the cup given his life blood poured out on the cross. Lord, they, they remind us of our need for a Savior. And, and it fills our hearts with worship to think of how you provided us salvation, salvation from your wrath. And so now, Lord, this time of communion also reminds us that we are one in Christ. Lord, we may have some differences. We can't perfectly get along and agree on everything here. Uh, no group can. But, Lord, there is one thing that transcends all of our differences that draws us together as a body of Christ in unity, and that is the cross of Christ. It is Christ that we come here for and gather together in his name for. And so now we come together in unity in one and say, thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your cross. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.